there's no such thing as the girl, she was a dream, you know. But the words are all right, you know. It's about what well, she taught when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure, did she understand it, all that. The, this sort of philosophy quotes was, was reasonable. I was thinking about it, you know, when I wrote it. It wasn't just a song. Uh, and it was about, you know, that girl that happened to turn out to be Yoko in the end, but the one that a lot of us were looking for, you know. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Melody Buskin. The Beatles. Naked. story all about the girl who came to stay she's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry still you don't regret a single day ah girl so hard to leave her she will turn to me and start to cry and she promises the earth to me and I believe her after all this time I don't know why Recently, I was just taking a walk and I was listening to Girl on headphones and it struck me what a remarkable composition it was by a 24-year-old. 
uh, you know, even if it was in conjunction with Paul, some lines, we'll get into that. But it's mainly John's song. And the maturity and the sophistication and the lack of wastage in terms of the lyrics. You know, every lyric counts on that song. And that's why I just sort of thought, well, let's dissect it and do anatomy of a song here on Girl. One thing that sort of really interests me, that melody in a discussion that we had with Mark Lewison originally about this song, Melody said to me, what's the first thing that really struck you about this song? What was the dynamic that jumped out at you that kind of really engaged you? And the first thing that struck me was the voice. It's the character of that voice. And interestingly, I saw a quote of Paul's where he said, my main memory is that John wanted to hear the breathing, wanted it to be very intimate. So George Martin put a special compressor on the voice. Then John dubbed it. I remember John saying to the engineer, Norman Smith, when we did Girl, that when he draws his breath in, he wants to hear it. It was probably the first record I can think of that uses breath as a hook. We'll get into the breaths on this song because they do play a prominent part. But if we sort of just start diving into the meaning of these lyrics... John, in 1970, in the Rolling Stone interview, said it was a reference to, as he put it, the Catholic Christian concept. Be tortured and then it'll be all right. I was trying to say something or other about Christianity, which I was opposed to at the time. Now, Paul, in the Miles biography, claims that he wrote the lines about pain leading to pleasure and a man breaking his back for his day of leisure. So... Once again, who knows? What do you reckon? Do you suspect that those lines, you know, sound more characteristic of John or of Paul? Absolutely more of John. I, I What do you think, Alan? I, I, to me, that sounds, that just doesn't sound like Paul's writing in that period to me. Right. I agree with you. Paul himself used to point out that uh, in lyric writing, when they did collaborate, that he would come up with the sort of relatively cheerful stuff and John would come up with the sort of, you know, downer antithesis. And, and I think the best example is we can work it out. You know, we can work it out is kind of a hopeful thing. Then you go to John's bridge. Life is very short and there's no time for fussing and fighting. Yeah. Before you get to the for fussing or fighting, it just seems like life is very short and there's no time. And it's, uh, it's, it's taking the darker view. And the pain and pleasure stuff sounds to me a lot more like the kind of thing John would have come up with. Plus, he said... In that other interview that you quoted, exactly why and what he was thinking about. So it's possible that they tossed around lines based on that concept and maybe Paul ironed it out a bit. Um, maybe Paul came up with the final way that it was put, but, uh, but the subject matter seems very John-like to me. Yeah, in a 1966 interview, I know Paul said that John had been reading a book about pain and pleasure. Not quite clear what that was, which book is never identified. And in his book, A Hard Day's Right, Steve Turner wrote, he could have been thinking of the Genesis account of the effects of Adam and Eve's disobedience, where Eve is told that with pain you will give birth to children. And Adam is told that cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. 
Well, we know that John was doing a lot of reading in 66 and also religious books and philosophical books. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that um, he's talking about toiling and that sort of thing, because in his book, in his own right, I think it is, he talks about the bourgeois and going on holiday and how, you know, people are having to work hard and, and they can't get anywhere. And, you know, it's always the, the privilege that seem to have the opportunities. So uh, that's something I've just kind of thought about. I should add here for the listening audience that Melody is a vocalist, a drummer. Oh, yeah, and she's my wife. <laughs> and a very keen Beatles fan. Yes. Uh, yep. Long so, time. Saw the Beatles in 66, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. For which I am eternally jealous. I'm yep. sorry. Yep, Suffolk Downs, Boston. <laughs> We've been down that road a few times on that subject. Uh, no, one thing I would say, the only thing that gives Paul a little bit of doubt and that maybe Paul is telling the truth is it isn't very long after this that Paul writes Eleanor Rigby. And let's face it, that's about as dark as McCartney gets. Hmm. So maybe. I mean, I could something about the that a man may break his back. That, that does sound a little kind of... You know, I guess the overall impressions you had asked initially, Richard, what was the what was the thing that jumped out at you about this record? And when I think of it as a kid hearing it, it was absolutely this sucking in of a breath thing. I wasn't sophisticated enough to to say, oh, maybe that's like a subtle hint to people who like to smoke weed. It definitely got me is very, very, very unusual and strange. And I remember disconcerting. I remember thinking about that record as a kid as it's very depressing. It's a very sad, it was very beautiful, but it was very depressing. And I was very, it didn't sound like any other Beatles song I could absolutely, like I was surprised it was them in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, the way that the song even starts, right? It's so conversational. Is anybody going to listen to my story? Right off the bat, he's addressing the listener. And I can't think of many songs up until that time, you know, popular songs, where it had that conversational tone. I mean, I think of Sammy Khan's lyrics to Young at Heart, the Frank Sinatra song from the mid-50s. There's a part there where he says, now here is the best part, you'll get a head start. That that kind of now here is the best part is like as if he's like leaning into your ear and, and making yeah. him aside. It is a conversational record. Again, the next level down from what first shocked me or what, what I think of it as being so different is the tone of Lennon's voice. Yeah. I wonder how he got into that cold. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think there was many takes of that record. And I, as memory serves, Girl was the last song recorded for Rubber Soul. So it, to me, is the sort of high watermark of that album. Yeah. But it's also, it couldn't fit on Revolver. Yeah, it was recorded on 11th of November, 65. What I found out interesting about it was that um, the beginning of the song is kind of like it reminded me of the medieval troubadours or the traveling minstrels when they would go into the square and they'd have everyone gather around and they'd say, come listen to my story. Um, that's what it kind of reminded me of. I get this visual of this, you know, this sort of man with a with a lute or a guitar going through and strolling through and telling his story and engaging, bringing everyone in and engaging them into his his story. And the other thing reflecting back on that you said uh, about the breath and we were talking about the breathing. My mother, when I was a teenager, she was telling me how much she loved this song and what she found really sexy about the song was his 
taking in a breath, which she related to me that it was like a sexual, you know, this this gathering up of feeling and emotion and, and wanting. She was the right age when that song came out to think about it, to see it as a sophisticated adult and go, ooh, that's a little different from a pop song. You know what I mean? I'm sure she had that feeling from the moment she first heard the song. And that's why she found him so attractive and so sexy. Right. I think it's him saying, I, you know, I, I fancy this woman so much and it... You know, I just, mm, I just love her, and I breathe her in, and and but but there's things about her that just don't gel with me. You know, I'm really disappointed at how I feel, because I'm I'm betwixt in between both feeling. Yeah, I kind of agree with Melody's uh, analysis there. It isn't mentioned in the song, but. In those days when people used to write, remember those things, letters, they came in envelopes and had a stamp? Yeah. Women used yes. to sometimes, you know, write you a letter and put a bit of perfume on the letter. And I could see, you know, it, the guy sitting there going, oh, <laughs> with, with the letter. <laughs> you know, if he, if he had mentioned the letter in a song, I'd be on completely firm ground there, but he doesn't. But, the, but there's that image. Yeah. They didn't breathe in through their mouths. That's the difference. They may have breathed through their nose to smell the, the scent, but breathing in through your mouth is, is it's, I don't know, I just find it a very intimate thing. I'll remember that. <laughs> but there's also something else going on just musically, which is that, you know, it, it starts, uh, he starts singing that over a C minor chord. Uh, C minor, you know, classically, not that, not that John would have known anything about this, but back in the days when, when different keys actually meant something, C minor was the tragic key. It's part of a, uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly. The shape of the melody of, you know, is there anybody going to listen to my story is really plaintive you know he's he's not just saying you know hey you, you want to hear something it's like there's there's sort of already a, a level of pain there um and and that in itself is kind of interesting and that i found arresting uh when i first heard it you know the the the, the way you're being invited to listen to him it's like you know something is up here and doesn't sound that comfortable. So let's let's hear what the what the problem is. And I also think what brings that closer to the listener is the fragility in his voice. He's it's it's a very painful, plaintive, fragile sound. You know, he's he's coming from that place of pain, and you can hear it in the vocal. And she promises the earth to me, and I believe her. After all this time, I don't know why. I noticed when I was a lot more mature as a woman, um, probably maybe just even maybe a few decades ago, that the actual movement of their heads while they're singing, to me reminded me of, and, and probably would remind a lot of women, of the act of cunnilingus. Is that the Irish airline? <laughs> <laughs> so you think that a, a lot of the girls, the young girls in the audience who are screaming, going wild, that either consciously or on some subliminal level, yeah, yeah. they were making a connection it's a sexual, with, with it's a Paul sexual, and George having their faces in them. It's a sexual, to me, the, the shaking of the head and singing the ooh with the, yeah, with that expression on the mouth, I think, to me, is a sexual expression. 
I mean, I know it's an, also an expression of happiness and gaiety and all that sort uh, of and thing. And how does that tie in with the ooze in girl? Um, it doesn't, really. <laughs> you brought it up, so I was just... Well, it depends on how well you are shaking your head, I suppose, Richard. Uh, think about it. She's cool, ooh, 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 Post-orgasm. All of it. It's pre-orgasm, post-orgasm, and I think it's all, all of the above. Yeah, but that that's the guy's side, whereas I think you were talking more of the—I I think of the ah and all that stuff as being—that's John having his way, mm-hmm. right? So, release, as it Alan? were. Uh, yeah. I think we put him to sleep. <laughs> I've always heard the song much more straightforwardly than that and, and hadn't really thought about— um... Oh, don't play the innocent with me. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I've interviewed so many, uh, you know, firsthand witnesses who were older than, you know, Mel was a kid when she got to see, um, you know, the Beatles, but girls that were 15, 16, 17 years old when they saw the Beatles live, and all of them brought up the sexual element. Not necessarily about the head shaking part, but just that there was something about if one of them even cast a look in their direction that just. It, it was just overpowering uh, sexual feelings and like almost like they were singing just to me. I'd hear a lot of that. We were breathing their air. All I wanted to do was breathe their air. So um, I can see how, especially a song where breathing is such a prominent part of the song, would, would have stirred up a lot of sexual feelings. And let's face it, in those days where still kind of the repressed 50s where we're coming out of it and into the dynamic free love 60s and 70s. So um, right on that, the, the sort of uh, tension that must have been building up for years and years and years with repressed sexuality in women and guys too. Um, yeah, must have been quite a moment to be of a certain age. We finally took over the studio. I mean, in the early days, we had to take what we were given, you know, and we had to make it in two hours or whatever it was. And one, three takes was enough. And, and we didn't know about you can get more bass and do it. We, learned, we, we were learning the technique and rubber soul. We were sort of more precise about making the album then. We were getting more fine-tuned, really. More of the same, but fine-tuning it. I mean, we certainly knew we were making a good album then. Okay, let's take it from the top and run it. Don't take it from the top. I mean, yes, okay. Did they save the song to be recorded last because maybe Lennon's voice would be strained and worn down. I, I wonder if that was a deliberate move to get more emotion into it. Right. He did overdub the vocal. And uh, as I said, just the character in that voice is quite remarkable. When he was asked who the girl was, he said, I always had this dream of this particular woman coming into my life. I knew it wouldn't be someone buying Beatles records. I was hoping for a woman who could give me what I get from a man intellectually. I wanted someone I could be myself with. And he then went on to say that the woman turned out to be Yoko. But, you know, when we get to the interpretations of the pain-pleasure line, there are multiple alternatives, right? You know, because for me, she's clearly not a virgin. I mean, the pain-pleasure thing could be losing her virginity. But she's not a virgin because when you listen to those lyrics, she's been living with him for a time. John said in 1979 it was the girl he always fantasised about, who for him ended up being Yoko. Well, he wouldn't be fantasising about a virgin, would he? He wanted someone who'd be good in bed. 
Yeah, she's far too sophisticated, the character, to have that kind of confidence to sort of put him down when friends are around type of thing. Pain and Pleasure could have been... I saw one theory that was interesting somewhere. Um, Can't remember who came up with it, but the idea that maybe this woman was a prostitute and the the way she would get everything she wanted in life was by uh, torturing men, essentially, sexually. You know, they would shower gifts, you know, the unattainable sexy chick type of thing. So I forget who came up with that theory, but that was pretty unique when I, I came across it one time, which made me think of the song in a different way. I think it's a composite of several women or possible women or imaginary women. Um, but I think there may be a little bit of Cynthia in there too. I mean, it's it's hard to know exactly when John uh, became sort of disillusioned with that marriage. Um, but uh, all about the girl who came to stay uh, sort of suggests something that, you know, so it's someone who he got involved with and now she's here to stay and it doesn't sound like he's happy about that uh despite the nice things he then says sometimes you know she's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry yeah um at some point he felt that about cynthia um but he may also by 65 have felt you know okay uh I married Cynthia because she was pregnant, but, you know, here I am now a famous Beatle traveling around the world, um, can have everyone I want, anyone I want, and everyone. <laughs> um, and maybe maybe there was an element of frustration with his marriage in some of the way the song is couched. What was your take on the pain-pleasure line? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I seem to remember reading something of from John very early uh, about it being about, you know, the sort of some sort of Christian concept of pain and pleasure. Um, and I didn't really know entirely what to make of that. I mean, if you look, look at the Genesis stuff, that's not necessarily Christian. I mean, that's just in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible as well. Um, so I didn't think of it in those terms. Um, I just thought that there was he must be referring to something about Christianity that I don't know about. But, um, you know, in, in, in that way, you could also think of it in terms of, you know, the central of Christianity is this sort of, you know, sacrificial image, you know, uh, uh, that sure is pain. <laughs> I don't know about the pleasure part. Yeah. It seems a little mysterious to me, you know, I mean, I, I had read him say something about Christianity, but, uh, it, it just seemed like, you know, keep in mind, when this came out, I was like 11 or 10. So it just struck me really as something that adults probably deal with that I don't know about yet. Is there anybody there? Anybody there? Is there anybody gonna listen to my story All about a girl who came to stay She's the kind of girl you want so much It makes you sorry Still you don't regret a single day Oh girl, girl, girl Oh girl, girl When I think of all the times I try too hard to leave her She will turn to me and start to cry 
and she promises the earth to me and I will leave her after all this time I don't know why girl 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 oh girl 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 she's the kind of girl that puts you down when friends are there you feel a fool Say she's looking good She acts as if she's understood It's cool Girl, girl, girl Girl, girl, girl Well, she told when she was young That pain would lead to pleasure Did she understand it when they said the man must break his back to earn his day of leisure Will she still believe it when he's dead? Girl, 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 oh Girl, girl oh. Why don't you understand? Why don't you understand, woman? Is there the possibility that the pain leading to pleasure could be an obscure reference to uh, Russ Meyer's faster pussycat kill kill? <laughs> right. Which came out in 1965. I'm being serious here, I know. Everyone teases me about certain things, and I'm happy to be teased. But seriously, I, I wonder, you know, that, that picture came out when they were on tour, you know, basically. I wonder if I, you know, it's just a thought that he might have found that kind of interesting in that middle-class way that he would disdain, you know, or, or make fun of the middle class for having these fads. And maybe he, you know, maybe he was starting to see some of the kinky side of life from, you know, being out in L.A. for a few days with I little think, to do. I think it's a lot easier than that. I think it's a lot simpler. Um, when women uh, are being married off to the man in the village or uh, when they're having the ceremonies and, and they have that first night uh, where the husband and wife are supposed to be having, you know, uh, their nuptials. Um, you know, women have to go through this process of enduring something that they uh, have no idea about. And, you know, uh, um, a lot of the times the, the woman elder will say, you know, you'll get used to it. You know, it'll be painful at first, but, you know, you'll have you'll be having you'll be making him happy and you'll get used to it. I think John wouldn't have been thinking about that. Um, John is, 
I think even when he's ascribing the business of, you know, was she told about the, the pain and pleasure, I, I think he's still thinking of it from his point of view. But the line says, was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure? This is what the, the you know, the elders in the, in the family will do, or the, or the mother or the grandmother, whoever is, you know, g- giving their daughter away will say that. The pain, you know, she's young, the pain will lead to pleasure. You'll be, you'll like it eventually. Yeah, but I don't. But I don't think that would have mattered to John. That that I think would have been outside his thought or experience. I think he's thinking more in terms of was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure. In other words, you can do all kinds of painful stuff to a guy, but you know, in the end, he'll be fine because there's pleasure involved as well. I tend to see it your way, Alan. I, I that's what I kind of pick up from that. Though I do sometimes wonder, and I'll throw this out to the group, is there any possibility that this is part two of You're Gonna Lose That Girl from the previous album? And, you know, because I kind of remember that that song also starts off, you know, I'm hopeless at figuring out what, the only keys I can figure out are the ones to the house and the car, so, you know, anything (laughs) beyond that. I know that John in later years did say that he thought that woman was kind of like a sort of sequel to Girl or like an updated version of Girl. Hmm. Yes, he did. He did say that, and I want to say that was in one of the RK the, that la- last interview he did with RKO after the Peebles one. I think it's in that. What interests me about that is I seem to also remember he kind of alludes to well, it's kind of the the '80s macho version, and and I'm thinking what's really sad about that is the 24 year old song sounds way more sophisticated <laughs> than the 40 year old song. Just a personal thing. I know "Woman's a Beautiful Song," but it's not "Girl." I think, you know, part of the genius of this song, and it is genius, um, is the economy of the lyricism as well. As I said, there's not a wasted word, and he uses the words to not only portray the girl, but we're getting a pretty good portrayal of him as well, where he's coming from. Uh, You know, I mean, right from the start. Is there anybody going to listen to my story All about the girl who came to stay She's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry. Still, you don't regret a single day. We stay in a relationship. Maybe the sex is great. That's what's holding us. But everything else about it makes us sorry. And at this point, he's saying, OK, he doesn't regret a single day. So, it's you know, he's still hooked on it. And then he says, When I think of all the times I've tried so hard to leave her, She will turn to me and start to cry And she promises the earth to me and I believe her After all this time I don't know why Clearly manipulated. Right, so we're getting her character really described to us here, right? She's a real conniver and he's stuck to her most likely because of the sex. So she comes to stay with him. Also because he feels sorry for her. Not just that as well. If she's putting on the tears, she's she's feigning sadness and she's feigning she doesn't want him to leave. But that's also, yes, the way of entrapping him. I don't see her as a Cynthia type at all. You know, I mean, the fact that no. he, we're going to get to where he says she's cool. You know, he admires her. She's cool in her attitude. She's cool in, obviously, I suppose, her lifestyle. And I'm sort of thinking of her not even as a Patty Boyd, more of a kind of... Anita Pallenberg or a Brigitte Bardot, you know, true ball busters. Well, he's not saying she's cool. He's saying she acts as if it's understood she's cool. 
Mm, well, he may think she's cool. No, but he sings. But she's cool. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's emphasizing it. You know, it's like he's lusting over her. She's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry. So in the end, after lusting after her and enjoying it, right? That's what he's saying. So once he'll be out of this, he knows he's going to regret it. He's going to look back on it and most likely regret it, which is why he's already projecting. Because in the second verse, she promises the earth to me and I believe her. After all this time, I don't know why. So it's like he's getting tired of it, but he's still stuck in it. Funds the drug. And he also has feelings for her, but he knows that her dark side is killing him. It's a very interesting song to have recorded last, as I say. What And the, the growth there, what's the most sophisticated song before this one that startles you as a John composition, before this one? I don't know if I can think of another song, including, you know, the likes of I'm a Loser or, or you know, other songs where he's in sort of woe is me mode. No reply. Yeah, no reply. Yeah, things like that. But nothing with this sort of level of maturity and sophistication. The, the As I said, I those other songs, most likely some of the lyrics, you know, there's some padding going on. But I don't see it in this song at all. You know, he makes everything rhyme and he summarizes everything in a few lines. Her behavior, his feelings and the situation he finds himself in. Yeah, and yet that somehow... A couple of weird other elements get plugged into this. And what I mean by that is the absolute antithesis of his 24-year-old sophistication at this point is he's 24 years old going on 15 with the tit, 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 you know? Yeah. I mean, that bit where he says, She's the kind of girl who put you down when friends are there, you feel a fool. Now, that is an ongoing theme in John's songs, right? Like I'm a loser, no reply. You know, he's going to get shown up. You know, it's the worst thing you can do to a macho guy like Lennon is embarrass him in front of his macho mates or maybe just another couple. Oh, he was doing that before he was writing them. He always assumed that sort of uh, Arthur Alexander type character who was being done wrong by a woman, whether he was doing uh, or or I just don't understand the, the, the Anne Margaret song, which is, you know, the put upon... You know, the protagonist in the song is the one that's been done wrong. That seems to have been, maybe he thought the, it was either a comfort level with that or the the sort of dichotomy of that where he was the strong guy and yet he's singing about being vulnerable to his audience that maybe he thought either that was a device or it's really how he felt. You know, Alan, when you were sort of saying the line before about When you say she's looking good, she acts as if it's understood. She's owning him here, isn't she? She's flipping the compliment back in his face. You know, he says she's looking good and she just cops an attitude. She knows she's looking good and she lets him know that she knows it. It's as if he's lucky to be with her. Yeah, see, I attach that not to the looking good part, but to the cool part. She acts as if it's understood she's cool. I see. You know? Interesting. I, 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 and, and they both fit together. It doesn't necessarily... You know, both things can be true. It's just that she's cool to me seems to be the end of the sentence, not a separate observation. Yeah, I, think, I think you're right. It works both ways. Also, I, I wanted to, you know, to go back to the, uh, you know, she will turn to me and start to cry thing. And, and it's possible that she's manipulating him in that sense. But um, I didn't necessarily assume 
any insincerity on her part there. He's trying to leave her. She starts to cry. It's, it's, it's possible that she could actually love him and, you know, be distressed that he wants to leave her. Um, or she could be manipulating. It could go either way, too. Can I also just say she may be so immature as to not really understand her feelings and have done these things, um, which happens, you know, young women, they don't really know what they're doing and they find all these different ways of acting and they're trying to feel their way through a relationship and they do the wrong thing and then it's, you know, it's bye-bye. And, um, you know, like she may not be even aware that she's doing any of these things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the song really gives us the full picture of her attitude, doesn't it? You know, she's a certain type and it's complex. It's rich in detail. You know, if she was a guy, we'd be absolutely condemning him, you know, because he's just a, a heartbreaker and, and a manipulator, basically. Um, was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure? Not could, but would. So don't you think she's using sex as a weapon? She's owning him. I think so. I think it goes both ways. There's the, you can read two ways into it. I think I think it's up for it's up for debate really. That's why we're here. <laughs> Is there anybody going to listen to story all about the girl who came this day she's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry still you don't regret a single day oh girl
funny how basically every part of the song that we've discussed is up for debate and that's an interesting thing about yeah this this aspect of john's writing is that there's actually far more here than meets the eye i mean it, it could be so many different things it, it seems very clear when you just listen to the song but when you start looking at it closely verse by verse it, it's it it offers all kinds of possibilities yeah i mean that's what made me think about doing a show about the song right you know as you said it is it's so open to interpretation it's so nuanced really and it's also almost like you know when people go to these uh groups um when they're having therapy and they're talking about their spouse you know and the spouse isn't there but they're having you know they're trying to get some sort of an understanding or some reaction or um, some opinion from somebody about what do you think about this? How do you, you know, am I am I stupid? Should I stay with her? And that's why he says, is anybody going to listen? Is anybody, he's really asking, is anybody going to tell me what the heck to do about this situation because it's killing me? I could go for that. Yeah, I mean, what about the notion that he said it turned out the girl for him turned out to be Yoko? But in many ways, she does match the lyrics, right? I mean, if we're looking both positively and negatively, that you could say, you know, Yoko, you know, love of his life and she she's called to him and, you know, she engages him. At the same time, she knows how to manipulate him. I certainly, uh, oh, no comment. <laughs> Strike that. <laughs> now, what about the line? Did she understand it when they said that a man must break his back to earn his day of leisure? I mean, talk about an overstatement. What in hell does that really mean? You know, he's not exactly working in the coal mines, is he, to earn his day of leisure? So, you know, will she still believe it when he's dead? I mean, you know, she's running him into the ground. So isn't it more of a rhetorical question? Did she understand it? You know, in other words, she must have understood it. Surely her parents told her. Well, maybe it's because his where most of us were looking at all of the Beatles and envying every single part of their existence. And, you know, that's the time period he's writing songs like Help and saying, hey, I really meant it, you know. So it, for whatever reason, it was killing him. You know, he, t- he calls that his fat Elvis period, where, you know, think of how emaciated he was a decade later, um, as opposed to kind of, you know, healthy-looking lad uh, of 65. So apparently it was... Maybe that's a plea to, hey, yeah, I'm a famous Beatle or whatever, but this this life is killing me, and you just don't seem to get it. You know, you're only seeing the glamour part of it. I I always took that couplet to be more about that sort of misunderstanding the 
what it is to be a John Lennon in his position as a 24-year-old and have the world at his feet and not really know what to do with it. And feeling alone. He's very alone. Oh, yeah. That's always the theme, isn't it? I mean, is it because she doesn't know or because she could care less? You know, is it like a mother basically telling a daughter about prostituting a daughter, but saying to her, you might not like it at first, but you'll find the men will love you for it. You'll be able to have all the jewels and everything you want. I mean, that's what you said, Melody, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, well, we were kind of touched on that in, in a way. But um, yeah, if she goes ahead and does what, what she, you know, she thinks she should do to keep it going, she's going to reap the, reap the benefits. But um, in, in doing that, she's also going to keep pushing him and, and run him into the ground. And was she told this when, you know, uh, when she was younger and all that? You know, this is what we're talking about here. And at the same time, it's still hard to avoid the inference of taking her virginity, which is why I think this song is so brilliant. Mm. That's funny. I don't ever see the virginity element of this. I, I, I never, it's, it, until you've mentioned it, I've always thought that this was the the chick that had him by the short and curlies, you know, right from the beginning to the end. And he just doesn't know what to do, whether he wants to, you know, if he doesn't regret a single day, that means he's sticking around, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact is, for all intents and purposes, what we're picking up from the lyrics is she's anything, as I said, but a virgin. She's most likely highly experienced, possibly more experienced than he is. Oh, that's true. That's an interesting... The other side of the coin is right here on the other side of the record in Norwegian Wood. And in a way, you know, as as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about those two songs going together almost. They're both acoustic. Um, one has a sitar, one has an imitation of a bazooki. So they both have references to odd instruments. Um, and But Norwegian Wood is completely casual sex. Yeah. You know, it's that's just, you know, and, and that he seems to be a bit happier about apart from, you know, setting her stuff on fire <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's true. I mean, here, as we said, he sounds worn out by it, doesn't it? He knows he's in over his head, but sex is the drug and he can't get out. Of it. And love, you know, are the drug here and he can't get out of it. And And he's a typical guy of that age, right? He's getting burnt for the first or second time, um, you know. With more age and experience, he'd most likely see the warning signs faster and know that, know that he's got to get out. It does sound like young love, most definitely. Yeah. I mean, will she still believe it when he's dead? In other words, she doesn't give a shit. You know, there's a wariness to it, right? She's going to kill me. She's going to give me a stroke. And that's why I think he's exaggerating about the man breaking his back to earn his day of leisure. Because that's how he's feeling. He's earning the money. She's probably spending it, wants to go down the clubs, and he's feeling like I'm breaking my back here and she's fucking killing me. Richard, she probably has that attitude I heard from more than one woman in my lifetime, which is men are like buses. There'll be another one along in 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and then wouldn't you know it, three of them will come together. Yes. <laughs> they always did. We're getting back into that kinky stuff again, Richard. You just can't help yourself. <laughs> but, I mean, how can someone of 24 be talking like this, even given all of the experience already under Lennon's belt? You know, we know about the Hamburg nights and Liverpool days. But, you know, I doubt he was feeling this way about Cynthia. So it may be, do you think this could have come from the stories he'd read, the films he'd seen? Because he's projecting mature beyond his years. I think he's an old soul myself. I think he's been around 
An times. old soul or an arsehole? <laughs> he's been around in a few incarnations and he's just grabbing what, uh, you know, what's in there. What makes a lot of sense in that statement to me, uh, Melody, and I agree with you, is that Lennon made a habit of saying, you know, I don't, I'm not Bowie and writing about Ziggy Stardust, you know, I'm not writing about fantasy. I write about what I know. I write about my life. Well, how the hell could 24-year-old Lennon have suddenly been, you know, like Day of the Triffids, something took his body over and was relating a life experience that he hadn't had yet. Or, and by his own admission, uh, says in, I think it was the Playboy tapes he talks about it, that this was, uh, this is him imagining somebody. That's not really his style. His style is to reflect back. Maybe that explains how different this is, because that's the other thing that jumps out at me. At this point, point of his career looking back from the 11th of November 1965 this song stands out as so completely different yeah and and I don't want to overlook that childish thing in there because where does the desire to take this heavy heavy record and turn it into a little bit of ice cream as John would say to use his words um, by putting in the joke by by sneaking a boyish thing I think uh, McCartney talked about it in the Barry Miles book, um, and he says it was, it was always amusing to see if we could get a naughty word on the record, fish and finger pie, prick teaser, tit, tit, tit. The Beach Boys had a song out there where they'd done la, la, la. We loved the innocence of that and wanted to copy it, but not use the same phrase, so we were looking for another phrase. So dit, 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 we decided to change in our waggishness to tit, tit, tit. She's the kind of girl who put you down when friends are there, you feel a fool. When you say she's looking good, she acts as if it's understood. She's cool. Oh, 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 I said there's not a wasted word you know the ooze uh, we already went into that you know what they could be expressing you know lust while the r's express relief and the tit tit tits are you know it's schoolboy humor isn't it but it's in sync with that greek dit 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 rhythm as you said eric and as you pointed out mel you know a single note Yes. Sustaining the tension and the drama yes. throughout that middle eight. And also the way the song raises and re rises up at the beginning and falls back down and rises up and creates the tension. And Well, and like, like I want to hold your hand, isn't yes. it? The build, 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 you know, in, in this case, then you have the sigh. I mean, listen to Beatles songs, all, you know, all the way through. The ascending chords are often there to express excitement mm -hmm. and the descending ones for, you know, something Res downbeat. Re resolved. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of that Greek section, Richard, all of a sudden it, it goes a bit, you know, like Greek music. And I, is that is the technical term for that sertaki? That which we should not call Zorba the Greek section, but that seems to be what everyone goes, oh, yeah, the Zorba the Greek section, you know. I just wonder, you know, it, it, there's a, it, that seems to be like a different time signature, although I'm not sure it really is. It sounds like it or feels like it. But there's a bit of Russian two-step in there as well, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think the the main reason we think of it as Greek is because of the way I, I assume it's George playing that that single note guitar line. And yeah. I mean, what I'd always read was that um, George Martin had just been on holiday in Greece and brought back a bazooki 
and they were sort of imitating that uh, the the sound of that, you know, which is a a very it, it's like a guitar, but it's a, a, a sort of a different timbre and a different kind of note production. It's a little like more cut off, you know, more staccato in a way. Was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure? I don't know why in that case George Harrison wouldn't have just picked up the bazooki and found the notes he wanted to play on it and right. played it on the actual bazooki but uh maybe it wasn't in the studio or maybe they you know just wanted to do it the easiest way possible but it, it, he seems to be imitating that and that's what gives it that character the time signature is the same yeah because apparently Paul you know I've heard came up with the idea for the Greek style guitar because of a piece of music he heard in Greece when he took a holiday there with Ringo in 1963. But, but yeah, you know, I've heard that story too. But, but you know, that's the difference for me between solo Beatles and, and the group, because here's John who could write this absolutely brilliant song, and Paul, even though it's not his song, you know, he feels it completely, he gets it. And because the two of them were simpatico, you know, he could just take it, in a slightly different direction like this, you know, this Greek influence and it works brilliantly, right? You know, twin genius. That's why it's unrivaled. Well, they also were great judges and great editors uh, as a unit that they never were quite so good at judging their own best material again as they were when they were four. Uh, a case in point on this song might be, I've never heard it, but apparently there was an unused fuzz guitar track on this played by Harrison that which uh, got mixed out. So um, I can't imagine fuzz guitar on this. Uh, and I think it was the right decision to leave it off. <laughs> I think also that the Greek guitar, when that actually comes in, adds a little bit of a dance element to the song. It really lifts it out of the doldrums to a certain degree. It makes a little bit of happiness come in, maybe a bit of, you know, the sound of hope coming in. But I, I feel that thing of dance coming in with that part. Which is interesting, right? Because that's a bit more upbeat mm -hmm. kind of thing. I mean, look, she's most likely flirting with other guys. You know, God knows what she's up to. And yet he doesn't regret a single day because he's still having that great time. And that's the drug which is doing him in. Mm. And it hurts because the bad always has a deeper, more lasting impact than the good, which is just a short-term high. The bad is the long-term legacy. <laughs> Tyttö kadun yli juoksee, kuinka kaunis on hän, kevyt pääsky kesän leikkivään. Missä asuu tyttö pois, hän juoksi katsoin kauan, toivoin tytön jälleen saapuvaan. 
Now, Steve Turner, in his book, he says the girl in the song seems far from ideal, which that's an understatement. She's heartless, conceited and humiliates him. Perhaps there are two girls in the song, the dream girl in the first half, whom he appears to be mesmerised by, and the nightmare girl in the second half who ridicules him. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's just one girl. I don't buy into that theory. But but you see, if John is saying that this was his you know, ideal girl he wanted to meet who could do for him what a a guy does intellectually and that it turned out to be Yoko. He's only thinking of one of the descriptions of her in that song. He he doesn't seem to be thinking of the the negative stuff. Yeah, right. And of course, we haven't heard her side of it. We're only hearing his side of it because, I mean, if we're going with John as, you know, the real life character... I mean, we know he was no angel. He might have been a guy that liked abuse. You know, you you hear these stories all the time about these um, wealthy uh, executives in Manhattan, at least before the pandemic, and they were on some uh, dominatrix, you know, client book, and that they the only way they could get off was being tortured in a sense because they'd had everything in the world handed to them. So it it could be that I, you know, there's just that little thread that runs through the song that makes me think that's a possibility. Do you think that the influence of acid is in this song? Do you think you can hear... Is this a post-acid song for John? Oh, gosh. I can't say I hear anything like that. But, you know, just a a few minutes ago when you were talking about, um, uh, you know, the pain and pleasure and how, you know, the the high keeps him going for a while, I was thinking, well, 
what if this is actually a drug song in the way that Got to Get You Into My Life is? It sounds like a love song, Got to Get You Into My Life, but but maybe this is, uh, you know, you could interpret it, except that I don't think it is. You, you could conceivably interpret it as John's ambivalence about drugs in general. Right. Yet another level of possibility here. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. I wonder if John Lennon was here to answer these questions. I wonder if he'd give you a different answer on a different day. Very possibly. Probably. Some people, you know, slag off Lennon and say, oh, he was just such a lie. He always changed what he said from one minute to the other. He was also remarkably honest. I think, you know, that is just a human trait, right? Catch us on a different day in a different mood and we have something different to say. We're feeling differently. But, I mean, he's laying it out here on the line. He's, again, he's very vulnerable in this song. You know, it's not as if he's got control of this situation at all. Very different than the guy singing Run For Your Life. It's something interesting that Mark Lewison pointed out, is that in the final verse, he makes his points via three questions to which I think he either knows the answers or he suspects he does. You know, the first one. Was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure? He knows the answer, but is asking whether she does. Maybe she's getting pleasure out of the pain she's inflicting on him. Maybe her parents just didn't teach her right. Or, you know, maybe it's a rhetorical question relating to the sex has its perks lecture. But, you know, either way, he's now the one suffering the pain. And he suspects that she knows what she's doing. But he's going to stay. Then the second question. Did she understand it when they said that a man must break his back to earn his day of leisure? Again, he knows the answer to that one. He's talking about himself. But did she understand it? And then... Will she still believe it when he's dead? He's got his doubts, hasn't he? In other words, is she going to admit to the fact that she's the one that drove him to his grave? Yeah, I mean, he's thinking, I'll drop dead and she won't give a fuck. She'll she'll probably even say it was my fault. You know, I brought it on myself. Like I say, on to the next, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, maybe because of all the jealousy, you know, because, again, there's that theme, right, that we have with Lennon. You know, I'll cry instead and jealous guy and so on and so forth. You know, maybe because of all the jealousy, he did experience these feelings, but they're not based in the reality of the relationships he had, not at that point anyway. Well, I think he, um, you could make a case that people want what they can't have. And maybe uh, playing hard to get got you further with Lennon, or pretending you didn't care, or being so self-involved that you go, nah, I don't give a shit what you're up to. What really matters is me wrapping up lions and uh, Lord Nelson's column or something, you know, in Trafalgar Square. And I think that was part of of what Lennon was after, was somebody who was strong in their own career and kind of the opposite of, of what Paul was after, because he had a lady that was strong in her career, and he decided, I, I want a family girl. That's interesting, the juxtaposition, the, the difference between the two personalities. And what about the fact that the song actually starts with the vocal, it comes in with the instrumentals, right? It's like he's right up there, front centre, isn't he? he? He is the narrator. So there's no intro to him. He is his own introduction. Yeah, not, not long after Paul did the same thing with another girl, right? Yeah, but he's not so much of a storyteller, right? You know, is there anybody going to come listen to my story? Oh, it's not the same level of sophistication, but I'm just wondering, you know how the two always influenced each other? I can't think of a 
uh, outside of nowhere, man, you know, what, where else does John kind of come in cold like that without a little instrumental? And the difference between those two songs is John comes in with a verse and, and engages the audience. And in Paul's version, he's coming in with a chorus. Well, he, he, declarative statement as opposed to an invitation to a conversation, you know. Oh, here it is. For I've got, you know, hey, oi, <laughs> like right. it's across the bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, there is a difference in attitude in one is vulnerable, one is swagger, you know. But it, but I just wonder if because of the proximity, the real reason I brought that song up was you're talking a few months, really, uh, between, you know, maybe something about that caught John's ear. Like, oh, that's kind of neat. He gets right to the point, gets right in there. Maybe I should do it. You know, we talk about the sophistication of the lyrics. What about the music in terms of the actual you know, arrangement and the the composition. Do you think the music matches the lyrics for sophistication? I don't know that it's um, among his most sophisticated things. I was looking at the music yesterday, actually, and uh, um, a lot of it is uh, just C minor to G7 um, and then sometimes down to F minor. Uh, the, the bridge is a bit different and and a little surprising, but not immensely surprising. I think that he used a fairly simple musical backdrop to to sort of highlight what's going on in the lyrics. And in fact, if you listen to the track without the vocals, it almost sounds like uh, the rhythm guitar is, is, is almost as if it's played on a ukulele. I mean, it has a very light kind of sound. Um, and it's played in a very sort of straightforward rhythm. In fact, you know, without the vocal, uh, the song sounds a lot sort of simpler and more commonplace than you would think. Um, it just sounds, you know, it does go into the Greek slash Russian thing, and and uh, but it but it it really is pretty simple. I, I think it's the addition of the vocal that really gives the song you know, 80% of its character.
compositionally, where do you think Girl fits in, you know, within the body of work for, for John as a songwriter in terms of what do you think laid the groundwork for that in, in terms of his songwriting? And how do you see that song possibly influencing his songwriting going forward and Paul's? Hmm. I don't really I think I feel much influence on future things. Uh, and for groundwork, I mean, it, it does seem to be as if it came from the same notebook as Norwegian Wood and Run For Your Life and, uh, and some of the other things on Rubber Soul more than on any other album. I mean, I, I, there, I can't think of that many things on Help or Beatles for Sale that sort of to me, in a, in, a, in a gut way, point the direction to Girl. Uh, and coming out of Girl, you, you mentioned um, Woman. I don't really see it necessarily, necessarily as an influence on Woman, but I can see how he might have looked at Woman as an update of Girl. Musically, they're, they're different. I mean, Woman is pretty simple, too, musically. Uh, and again, like Girl... Uh, is largely propelled by the melody and the lyrics. Um, but yeah, you know, if, it's, it, it's funny, you know, we're, we're looking at this song really closely now, and I've been thinking about it since, you know, we spoke about it a few days ago, and, uh, you know, it's a song I've always sort of liked, but I never really thought of it as up in the league of strawberry fields, you know, in terms of John's output. Um, maybe I, I, I tend to be more impressed with the experimental stuff. And, but, you, you know, if you look at it, this one, the, that, that breathing that we've been talking about on and off uh, throughout this, I mean, that kind of is an experimental thing in a way. Nothing like that on any Beatles songs before that. Um, and nothing I don't think that they picked up and used again, but they tended not to, they tended not to use things again if they were prominent enough for you to notice the first time, you know? Um, so yeah, you know, it's just that, uh, I also, you know, in this, the discussion of the sexuality of it, I mean, I can, I can, I think of the breathing as possibly, you know, sexual, but otherwise to me in this song, the important stuff, see, you know, the, the sex seems to be in the background. The important stuff seems to me to be the dynamic of the relationship that is obviously troubling him in this song. I mean, if it's supposed to be one woman, um, there's an awful lot going on that is making him uh, a bit crazy. You know, I, 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 uh, can't you know you, you she's kind of girl that makes you you know want her so much it makes you sorry but i keep trying to leave her and uh doesn't work and she puts me down when my friends are there i mean there's a, there's an awful lot going on and that's the stuff that i've really focused on um and the sex i i think is just uh something that you know you can assume is the is the the pleasure in that pain and pleasure thing but it's the it's the battle <laughs> that that sort of you know brings my uh, attention to the whole thing. You know, something getting back to the voice as well. We talked about it sounding you know world weary and it's fragile and of course it's got that characteristic Lennon edge to it. The other thing about John's voice, you know, in addition to being completely recognisable, is the warmth. 
And you see, that's what draws me in and engages me is there's, there's for all of those other qualities, there's also that warmth that always runs through the voice. And even in this aggressive man, you can hear the heart and the soul. Mm. It's like he's singing to a small group of friends. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it is. Beseeching them and, and asking for advice. He definitely seems to be in trouble to me. You know, he's, he's in turmoil. He already knows. It's almost like uh, Sisyphus rolling that rock up, up the hill in, in Hades. He knows he, as soon as it rolls down, he's just going to have to roll it up there again. He's, he's not leaving. He already says that. I've, you know, he's tried. It doesn't work. And she, uh, she'll tell him what he wants to hear, and he'll stick around. And he's going to keep being stuck in this pattern, which is, as I say, I find it so interesting that that's the last song they record was that deliberate because I want pathos. I want tiredness. His voice sounds a little tired in this. Mm. Yeah, it does. I've been thinking about uh, belatedly uh, in influences that this song may have had on, on future things. And it just occurred to me that um, there may be a, if not a direct line, maybe a dotted line between girl and happiness as a warm gun also starts with just John's voice. And also oh. starts with, you know, she's not a girl who misses much. I mean, it, it could almost be a continuation in a way. That's actually really interesting, and I agree. That makes sense. I never thought of that before. But that's very true. It starts with his voice and the music, as you said. And, uh, yeah, he's talking about someone who clearly doesn't sound quite as negative, does she, in, in Happiness is a Warm Gun. He's more in tune with her, it sounds. Right. Girl, take one. She's not a girl who misses much Do -do 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 -do. Oh yeah She's the kind of girl to put you down When friends are there you feel a She's looking good, she acts as if it's understood She's cool, oh, 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 girl Girl, girl Was she told when she was young that pain would lead to pleasure? Did she understand it when they said that a man must be The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok.
today She's the kind of girl you want so much It makes you sorry Still you don't regret a single day Oh girl Girl When I think of all the times I've tried so hard to leave her She will turn to me and start to cry She promises the earth to me and I believe her Girl